Good morning. Our scripture passage for this morning, which will also be Neil's sermon text, is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, and the first 20 verses. That's Mark, chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake, while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on the good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, multiplying 30, 60, or even 100 times. Then Jesus said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside everything is said in parables, so that they may ever be seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The Father sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others... Like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the the desires of other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop. Thirty, sixty, or even a hundred times what was sown. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, as Neil comes to share with us the the message that you have given him, I pray, Lord, that you would give him peace and joy and confidence and boldness and love. Our confidence is not in ourselves or in our ability to deliver a message, but our confidence is in you and in your gospel and in the truth and rightness of your word and of your Holy Spirit's ability to open our minds and our hearts even our whole lives, to be transformed into the image of Christ. For this is his work to do. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for these parables that we can learn much from and that are literally infused with eternal life. May we be the recipients this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.
Uh, today we're going to be speaking about issues that are uh, imperishable and those that are perishable, and the uh, parable gives us a real study in contrasts. And uh, the last 24 hours have taught me quite a bit about those two different things. Uh, the, on the imperishable side is my relationship with my wife, Kate. This is the 44th year of us being in love. Uh, yet, Kate and I are very different. Uh, Kate is a planner, have it done ahead of time, and I must admit, I'm kind of a last-minute person. Uh, and so when it comes to preparing for a sermon, it can be a bit of a last-minute thing. And so, you know, yesterday I was getting a lot of work done, and I was really excited about the work I had done. And then along comes the perishable. My dear old laptop is quite perishable. It's, it's actually falling apart right now. And where it's falling apart is the power button, and it separates, and the power goes off, and it doesn't want to save things. And I was going to have a stat call to Theo to get help with this. But I got up early this morning, 5.30. I was working on the sermon, and things were going along really well. Three hours, okay, I got it just where I want to get it. And now I've got to save it because I've got to give some to Dan, and it's not saving. And in fact, it's completely gone by the time I go back to look at it. So on the perishable side of things, it's nowhere. On the imperishable side, dear Kate said last night at about 6 o'clock, I think you should just save those things on a USB because you never know what's going to happen. And so I did. So there was some work that was saved from yesterday, and it was an interesting study in contrast, and uh, just to show you that Kate is always right. So, uh, we've been talking since the beginning of January about where our treasure is as people. Uh, And it's a really good question to ask ourselves. Where is your treasure? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And our world is filled with things that wants to take our attention and become our treasure and become a false treasure. Uh, In my work as a As a doctor, I get a lot of people who come to me with this kind of a sentiment. You know, Doc, I can't run, and I really, really feel sad. And I must admit, as a runner in recovery, I felt this myself. I often ask patients this question, and it's kind of meant to be provocative when they're really despondent about their inability to run. What are you running from? And I must admit, this is usually the look I get from the patient. Doc, are you high? Like, what are you talking about? What am I running from? Running is the best thing you can do, right? Uh, Running is kind of my whole deal. But what I think many of my patients don't understand is that, as Pascal said, we all have this God-sized vacuum in our heart, and we try to fill it up. And we fill it up with all kinds of things. And one of the things the culture thinks is good to fill it up with right now is is exercise and fitness. And I go to CrossFit and I go to the gym regularly. And that's a good thing. There are many things we would all agree are, are harmful to people that people are trying to fill up that vacuum with. And that can be sex and drugs and rock and roll and things that often lead to harm in people's lives. So this brings us back to that central question, where is your treasure? I want you to think about where your treasure is. 
And for a minute, I just want you to close your eyes and, and humor me. Close your eyes and think about some things. Just let me walk you through a series of mental exercises. So I'd like you to consider the fabric of your life. And I want you to think about what is most important to you. What is really most important to you? I can see some of you has your eyes open. As you consider this most important part of your life, how would you say your daily activity reflects that importance? Ask yourself, are my actions consistent with my core beliefs? Do I condemn myself when I don't measure up? Do I feel condemned when I don't walk my talk? How about do you avoid anything that might cause you to look weird or different or cause others to mock you? Do you ever feel like you're on a treadmill just going through the motions day after day, not really accomplishing anything? Do you ever feel let down when you reach a long-term set goal and you really don't feel any sense of accomplishment, you don't really feel any joy? Do you find yourself wasting time in things that have no eternal significance? You can open your eyes. Thanks for playing along. We don't often ask ourselves questions like that. <clears throat> but I think that we as Christians, we certainly should. So if you reflect on what's most important, what came to you, what is the most important thing in my life, now reflect on how that is manifest in the time of, of your life. Yuri preached to us early in this year about time. How is your use of time reflecting your true priorities? If your schedule is like mine, sometimes it's just all about you. Busy, busy, busy. Yeah, I'm totally busy. It's all good. Does your use of money, another thing that Yuri preached about several weeks ago, does your use of money reflect your priorities, what you think is really the most important? If we went through your visa statement, what would we get a glimpse of in your life? It's kind of a scary question. Mark preached about identity several weeks ago. How do you identify in terms of your relationship with other people, in terms of your relationship with the culture? And does that identification reflect what's most important to you? Is that working? Today we're going to spend some time talking about this idea of avocation. So something a person does in addition to a principal occupation especially for pleasure or a hobby. <clears throat> so this world of, <clears throat> excuse me, this world of, av <clears throat> I'm finding puberty very hard to go through, so it's, excuse me. <clears throat> Thanks for the laugh, that's good, brother. Today we'll be talking about the treasure of avocation, and I think you'll agree with me that our culture really has our hobbies and our passions and our pursuits we call them pastimes, whatever they are, leisure activities. Hey, man, I'm really into that. 
that has become something that has become a treasure for many of us. And actually, people now identify as their treasures. I am a triathlete. I am a musician. I am dot, 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 whatever you may identify as, as this passion. In my work, I deal with a lot of people whose passions are very physical, um, but they really can be anything. I've seen a patient who came in with a sore shoulder after doing this. And you might say, like, what were you thinking, brother? Um, but notwithstanding, this is what the personal trainer had the person doing to maximize shoulder stability and strength, and off you go. And the shoulder was not very much helped by this activity, as you might imagine. So, unfortunately, these avocations don't have to be crazy like that. They can be anything, really, from knitting uh, to being a triathlete. They can go really any way. So we come back to our question. Where is your heart? Where is your treasure? As you think of this idea of your pastimes, their hobbies, these, these things you're into, are they crowding the room a little bit? One of the key scripture passages we've been looking at, considering where our heart and our treasure is, comes from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. I'll just read it for us again. Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So I kind of like this slide. Hey, dude, when I said curls might help, that's not what I meant. Uh, Leaving aside the negative aspects of uh, not storing up treasures in heaven, there are downsides to our avocations. I think one thing we see early in the avocation cascade is envy and coveting. You're a better golfer than I am, and that really makes me mad, so I'm going to spend 20 hours this week practicing on golf, so I'm better than you. And God looks down on that and says, good choice, Neil. Great. Happy about that. So this idea of wasting time, a lack of really an eternal purpose, it's really easy to fall into these traps. If you look at the picture here, the pride and narcissism that can happen in the gym, um, it's interesting. You, you go to a gym now, and wow, people are filming themselves doing exercises uh, to put online. And it's kind of like, I thought we were just doing this to stay healthy, to stay strong. And then this idea that things of our pastimes are vulnerable to destroy. I worked all weekend building that beautiful model, and the dog sat on it and broke it. That was my pastime. The other thing I think that we have to acknowledge is that our pastimes can become obsessions. And there are some red flags in this journey of your pastime being an obsession. You actually remove yourself from people to participate in your hobby, your thing. You can put your family finances at risk to indulge your hobby. Daryl said to me this morning, something like $60 billion is going to be wagered on the Super Bowl today. Uh, how many times the camera will show Taylor Swift, what color the Gatorade will be to douse the winning coach. Questions like that. People are gambling on this. 
You think that might put the family finances at risk? You think that might become a bit of an obsession we could back away from as opposed to just an innocent little wager, I'll bet you a bag of chips that my team wins? You get depressed without your hobby. Uh, when I went through health problems that prohibited me from running, I was quite sad about that deal. It didn't feel right to me. You avoid important responsibilities to fulfill your passion. Uh, I've got colleagues who golf themselves through two marriages uh, before they finally figured out how much they should be golfing. You get angry when your activity wasn't successful. Um, I was training for the race and I didn't do very well and now I'm really mad and this was supposed to be fun. You were just supposed to be having fun. And it, it's easy to see how these things get, get sideways quickly. So I'd like us to focus today on this idea of using our avocations, our hobbies, and our interests to facilitate lives of meaning, not get in the way. I think we probably all want to live a life of meaning and purpose and value. That's why you're in church. That's why you're here. Can Jesus speak to me to help me lead a life of meaning and purpose? So let's look at how we store up treasures in heaven, which is essentially bearing fruit in our lives, and live lives that are motivated by the Spirit and not by the flesh. So we're going to do the, the, the parable of the sower as our metaphor for this. And I, I love alliterations, and as I was reading it this, this January, I just started writing down on the side of my Bible this idea of the sower and the seed and the soil and Satan and stress and stuff and success. And it, it seemed, seemed to work. I also just want to show you where I got Mark 4 from. And I also just need to confess that two, 2023 was kind of a tough year for me personally. I, I had lots of anxieties and issues that were kind of clouding my relationship with God. And I must admit, I found it quite hard to crack the good book in 2023. As you look back on it, you wonder what's chicken and what's egg. Uh, and I think it, I'm, as I'm looking back on it, I see not cracking the good book enough was maybe more the chicken, not the egg. But I was thankful for the Bible plan that Pastor Yuri put together. And I tried to follow the Bible plan. If you're like me, you've probably tried this many times in your life. Tried to start a Bible reading program and kind of get sidetracked. But I found this one really kind of different for, for some reason. I'm not sure why. I really enjoyed flipping through the Bible to the various passages. It felt good to be back in the scriptures. I started making notations. I want, I want to chalk up this Bible. And that felt good to realize, well, I was back in Mark 3, and now I'm in Mark 4. I go back to Genesis. Cool, I, I've been there. I remember thinking that. It was helpful for me. So I'd commend it to you. I think we're going to try to do this every month, hopefully. Uh, and, you know, I would just say I think there's power uh, in, in that word, in the Scripture. So the, power, the parable of the sower may not seem like the most intuitive place to deal with this idea of avocation, but it really spoke with me to me as I read it in January. And this is a great parable because Jesus tells you what it means. It doesn't require interpretation. The master himself tells us what to think here. Then Jesus said to them, this is his explanation. 
The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seed sown among thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desire for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seed sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times that was sown. Again, one of, I I found Mark's most helpful sermons to me over the years was this idea of distinguishing the word of God as meaning the logos. Uh, This sowing the word of God is not sprinkling Bibles on the, on the road or the sand or, or, the, or the rocks. It's the Jesus principle. It's the unifying principle between humanity and God. It's the Logos. It's Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, the Jesus. So this is about the, the seed being Jesus. That's where all the spiritual things grow up from. So the seed is Jesus, the Logos. The types of soil represent our hearts. Now, that typo was there because I was so tired this morning at 5.30. If I'd have followed Kate's plan, there'd be no typo. So we have four soil types along the path, on the rocky ground, among the thorns, and then the good soil. Let's start with the along the path. When anybody hears the word God of God and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away what has been sown in his heart. This is what is sown along the path. The vulnerability here, according to Jesus, is the evil one. It's quite clear that Jesus encountered Satan. We're taught that in Scripture. Here, Jesus is essentially naming Satan as one of the blocks in the development of of the faithful life. Jesus clearly indicates the evil one exists and is a threat to becoming a potential believer, snatches away the logos, the seed of God. So we need to acknowledge this risk. 1 Peter 5.8 gives us a good perspective on this. And 1 Peter 5.8 says the following, Be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour someone. So be aware. It doesn't say be paranoid, be fretful. Jesus can overcome the temptation of the devil and tells us that we have a way out. But along the path, the vulnerability here that's leading to seek to our destruction comes from the enemy. In Luke 22, uh, Jesus himself, in dealing with, with Simon, talks about Satan. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. 
This sifting like wheat is thought to represent the destruction. Satan has, has asked for the destruction, the breaking down of Simon Peter. And I think for us as Christian people, uh, early believers, often the destruction comes from our own internal dialogue. We hear this condemnation. Neil, you're a failure. Neil, you're not good enough. If you were a better Christian, you'd be living like this. Neil, you just do not have it together. And those voices typically come between 3 and 4 in the morning. And how many of you I know have the exact same voices? I see some nodding in the crowd. We should have a conference call for all of us up at 3 in the morning. I think we have a big, a big conference call. But let me remind you, Jesus does not talk to you like that. Those are not his words. Romans 8, the beautiful words. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The Bible talks about rebuke, absolutely, and conviction, absolutely. But it's not you are a failure. You got this all wrong as I think sometimes we go to. So this idea of being along the path, you have to acknowledge that we have a mortal enemy. It's part of the deal. There's a U2 song that says, I don't believe the devil, I don't believe his book, but the truth is not the same without the lies he made up. And I think there's something to that statement. His lies have corrupted our truth and still do. His lies corrupted our universe. Our DNA made us vulnerable to die. Listen to your internal dialogue. Don't let that be picked away by condemnation of your soul. Jesus will not talk to you like that. So along the path of vulnerability is our enemy, the evil one. Along the rocky ground, our second type of soil. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word, the logos, and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the logos, he immediately falls away. And so I think our truth here is that a superficial faith makes us vulnerable to the trials of life. And we will be persecuted. So we need to be aware that we are going to be persecuted if we're a Christian. And the preparation for that seems to be the depth of our faith. Are you going deep? And the superficial faith is God loves you and has saved you and you're going to heaven. But there's lots to grapple with in there, the depths of the faith. Um, And so this is trying to get down into that, giving yourself a chance to build your root system. You need to be aware that persecution is essentially promised to those of us who believe. And I'm just going to read a smattering of scripture. 2 Timothy 2, 3, and 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And as Mark says, all means all. John 15, 18, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. 
You can see that reflecting now in the world in that Christians are the most persecuted people group in the world. Matthew 5, 44 from the Sermon on the Mount. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, who persecute you. That's our relationship with them. We're supposed to pray for them. Matthew 5, 10 to 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So persecution's part of the deal, just like Satan's part of the deal. We have to process that. And here's a beautiful verse, John 16, 33. I love this verse. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Take heart. Take heart. So, brother and sister, if you're there, if you're kind of feeling, man, my faith is kind of shaky. Uh, I don't feel that my roots are that deep. Things are getting tough right now. I need some help. Jesus is saying, I've overcome the world. It's going to be okay. Reach out. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. I see, our, I see this beautiful family here, Kadir and Najila here. Talk about people being persecuted. I think my friend Anayat is here. People being persecuted. You don't have to look far to see the realities of that. So, among the, on the, the seed on the path, we have an enemy, and the enemy is set for our destruction. Those among the rocky places... We have, again, difficulty with persecution. Our faith may be superficial. We don't have deep roots. Now we move to that amongst the thorns. And I think this is where most of the affluent church finds itself, probably where most of the North American church, and probably with most of you who are here for more than the second or third time, if you're a Christian person who's been a Christian for maybe more than a year, you, you're probably, this is where you find your life go off track, among the thorns. Still others, like seed sown among the thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. So the three rungs on this ladder to trouble are the worries and anxieties of life, the lie of wealth, and what we'll call the desires of other things. The worries of the world, I would say that this is my biggest stumbling block uh, into bearing a lot of fruit in my life or having a fruitful life. I seem to be anxious about a lot of things. And then I get worried, as I think Yuri very helpfully helped us understand earlier uh, in the year in his message on this. I get worried that I'm not being anxious for nothing, as it says in Philippians. I'm anxious for everything. So how does that work? And it was a very helpful message for me to reprocess that, this idea of concern versus anxiety, and this idea that we must all be stuck in sin somehow if we're worried. But it clearly is a good description of living amongst the thorns. It's easy to worry, and many people worry. So then we have this idea of the lie, the big lie of the culture. He who dies with the most toys wins. That's one of the, the lies. That's the deceitfulness of wealth. I love these two guys. The deceitfulness of wealth. 
This is the second rung in this uh, timeless analogy used by Jesus. If we go back to that vacuum, that God-shaped vacuum in our hearts, money won't fill up that hole. Money's not going to fill up that hole. Francis Schaeffer, in his text, The uh, True Spirituality, Dr. Schaefer stated that the first sin in many of people's lives is the sin of coveting. It's a sin of coveting. And it leads to a series of other disordered behaviors. So I wake up in the morning, I don't want any rings. But I see your shiny gold ring, and now I want that shiny gold ring. And I spend the rest of my day plotting how to get a shiny gold ring that's better than your gold ring. And man, I'm ashamed to admit how many times that happens to us in life. And recognizing this, whether it's in being fitter or having more or competitive or better marks or a better job, whatever that is, it's clearly a thing that we humans are vulnerable for. I I think that we can all acknowledge that. So this lie that... Money is going to make it better somehow. Obviously, it can solve lots of problems, but it's not going to fill up the hole in your life. It's described as the deceitfulness of wealth. The third rung is in the desire for things. And these are legitimate quotes that are supposed to inspire people that I found on on the Google machine. The only way to cure an obsession is to become obsessed with something else. That sounded like a really smart way to live your life. And then this one I thought that was great too. I suggest you become obsessed about the things you want. Otherwise, you're going to spend a lifetime of being obsessed with making up excuses as to why you didn't get the life you wanted. This is not Christian theology, okay? Just in case this is not any particular book. But I think we can all acknowledge that we are going through places in our world uh, that can take us off track easily. We have to acknowledge our tendency to pursue things that have no eternal significance. So this is the average time spent on social media, and I'll tell you, obviously, that subsequent to the pandemic, these numbers are even higher. It's about an average of three hours per day people spend on social media. Three hours per day. That's crazy. But that's maybe your thing. I don't want to call it crazy. Just be aware that this can be a draw that may not have any eternal significance in your life. You may need to put the phone down. Hey, brother, step away from the bar. You've had too much. Right? I love uh, Eugene Peterson's uh, poetic rendering of Scripture, in particular uh, in Galatians 5. He describes this rogues gallery of of these uh, types of activities, these avocations, when we desire things that don't have godly significance. Uh, Just listen to this. It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex. A stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage. Frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness. Does that sound like an avocation to you? Trinket gods. Magic show religion. Paranoid loneliness. Cutthroat competition. All-consuming yet never satisfied wants. A brutal temper. An impotence to be loved or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits. 
The vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community. I could go on. So we're going to come back now to this idea of avocations, which I think Peterson can describe really well as small-minded and lopsided pursuits. And I just want to tell you that I am very much uh, guilty of a lot of these things. I, I get into things, and it's easy. And you find yourself way down the rabbit hole uh, on stuff that has no eternal significance. And so this is talking to myself more than I'm talking to you. Most of these things in life, our avocations, begin with a nugget of, of truth. We start something because it's fun, right? It's fun playing pickleball or it's fun playing tennis. It's fun. It's good. We think it's maybe it's healthy. I'm going to go to the gym because it's good for me. I should do that. Uh, and, and I would tell you that in every person who's addicted, especially to substances, they start because at the beginning it makes them feel better. These are people who have never felt the strong embrace often of a parent or of God. And that first hit of heroin makes them feel an embrace. A few drinks after dinner makes them feel less anxiety. It works for a spell. Oxycontin, when you first take it, makes your pain go away. It just doesn't last and then leads to more malevolent behaviors. Things go off the rails. If we start with something like a, a obviously helpful thing, like physical activity, people who exercise regularly have markedly lowers, lower levels of disability and a life expectancy that's about seven years longer than sedentary people. So it's good to exercise. It's good for you. I'm a strong advocate. I tell all my patients every visit, every day, what kind of exercises are you doing to treat your problem? It's important. I kind of like Homer. Uh, so strength training has the biggest effect on what's called all-cause mortality of anything you can do for your health. Whatever age you're at, you have to be doing strength training. It will increase your, what's called your health span your independent living ability. This data is now quite clear. But there's a safe upper limit that exists. Too much physical activity is actually harmful for you. Chronic, intense aerobic exercise can make your heart have patchy scar tissue in it. It can mess with both the structure and the electrical function of your heart. It increases the risk of what are called atrial rhythm problems, atrial fibrillation, by between 500 and 1,000 percent. Too much exercise is not a good thing. It can clearly also become an obsession. So we have a graph like this, that if you are very sedentary, there's risks to your health. The nugget of truth is, get active. 150 minutes a week, 30 minutes of walking five times a day bottoms out your health risks. But as we start doing more, I'm training for the marathon, it increases your health risks. And the same thing with strength training. The optimal strength training is about 40 minutes a week. I'm going to the gym two hours a day, doc. 
Well, you're increasing the risk to your heart and to other maladaptive aspects of health. I work with a lot of triathletes. Triathletes train up to 15 hours a week. These are just regular folk. This is the guy's a, a dentist or an accountant, and he's training 15 hours a week for his triathlon. About 15% of people who go to indoor cycling sessions endorse anxiety and depression associated with going to their indoor cycling sessions. Clearly, these things are issues. Athletes have higher incidence of depression and anxiety than the general population. Female athletes, risks to their bone health, risks to menstrual function, eating disorders, all more common in those pursuing too much physical activity. The avocation has become a problem. The nugget of truth, exercise is good for you, strength is good for you, has become an idol, and it's harming that person. Scripture helps to keep us in the right perspective. We're training for godliness. Scripture says, what's the right perspective of this? Stop the exercise. Let's listen to what the Bible says. 1 Timothy 4, 7, 8. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, acknowledging the nugget of truth. Physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and for the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people and especially of those who believe. You can't labor and strive unless you're strong. You just can't. So you do need to train yourself to be strong so you can be of some value. But it often becomes the idol. It very easily turns over. So training in godliness is the better pastime. I go to the gym an hour every day but I read my Bible maybe two minutes every other day. Right? Pretty easy to get there. I've been there. Training in godliness prepares your heart to be good soil. Dan, did we lose the picture up there? Did I do something? It's up there? Okay, sorry, I can't see it back there. So the good soil. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and another thirty. So what's associated with being good soil? You hear the word. You hear the logos. You're given a chance to hear And clearly, that's part of the responsibility of churches and us as individuals. You can understand it at a deep level. I'm not sure if the typo was corrected. It's good. You're given a chance to go deep with your faith. You can navigate the enemy. You can navigate worry, the deceitfulness of wealth, and wasting time with avocations. And then your life bears fruit, and the harvest is a miracle. I don't think your hearts are that bad. 
I don't think your hearts are that bad. Can the soil quality be changed? How do we change the soil quality so that everybody in the building is the good soil? Wouldn't that be cool? I think that's the goal of us and the church. Well, we help each other understand the logos. We, that's part of our DNA. We, let's help each other deal with that. Come to Bible study. Come to prayer meeting. Help people. Dig in. We have people here who will help you with that. Give people a chance to develop their relationship with Jesus. Give them a chance. People need help. People aren't going to come just straight off the street and be all good and all ready to go. Give people a chance. Acknowledge the enemy. The truth is not the same without the lies he made up. Reject that internal voice in your head that says you don't measure up and condemns you. Anticipate trials. Anticipate trials. Jesus promised them. Help each other deal with our anxiety. There's a great movement to decrease the stigma of mental health issues in our world. Admit your issues. I'm sad. I'm anxious. I need help. Help each other understand the lies of money. Help each other understand that. Help each other understand the risks of small-minded and lopsided pursuits. Man, you're gaming a lot. Gracious. Was it 12 hours this weekend you were gaming? What's, what's, what's up with that? Help people understand what true fruit is. So what did Jesus mean by bearing fruit? I don't think it's very complicated. It's an action, a belief, or a character trait that brings honor to, to, to God, honor and glory to God. Titus 3.14 says, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help in cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. And then those character traits that you all know from Galatians 5. Manifestation of the fruit in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those are the things that are spoke to, to characterize as, we, as the fruit comes in our life. So back to our topic for today. Avocation, our hobbies. And this one sums it up perfectly. 1 Corinthians 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, the imperishable. That imperishable thing you're chasing is storing up treasures for yourself in heaven, developing fruit, bearing it abundantly, not wasting your time. And it goes on. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is not an either-or. This is take that nugget of truth that, in, in the case of fitness work, strength training, so you can serve other people. 
My dear mom was obsessed with knitting, knitted all the time. It was her avocation. But it was a great service. Everybody in the family had lovely sweaters and baby got baby bonnets. And it was just this lovely thing. It, there was value there. So the avocations don't have to be negative in any context. So, training in godliness. I aim at the highest imperishable prize, the wreath that will be given to me by Jesus himself. What's important to him? I control my actions. I have agency. I'm aware of waste. I'm aware of what doesn't matter. I'm thinking about it. I want to have a life of meaning. And we have to grapple with this ourselves, folks. It can't be you calling me out. Let the Spirit dig these things up in you. And consider it rebuke, not condemnation. Not condemnation. My actions reflect my my priorities. Am I walking my talk? Do I have a life of concentric circles where they all line up? And that my priority is my identity. What's my identity? I'm a child of Jesus Christ. I want to be his servant. That should be our identity. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this timeless series of contrasts, this metaphor, this parable. Thank you for explaining it to us so we don't have to wonder what it means. I would pray that every person here can have a heart characterized by good soil, that we would acknowledge that we have an enemy, that we would be aware that we will be facing trials and persecution in this life, that it does take work on our behalf to deepen our faith, that the world presents us with temptations of wealth and coveting, but that ultimately you want us to have lives of meaning and service for you. Thank you for this chance, Jesus. Amen. And now we'll close with the word of the Lord. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their mindset what is the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. It is my hope that we can go this week pleasing God by the virtue of our walk And I pray that all of your hearts are good soil. Go in peace.